Welcome to the We Raise the Stars and Stripes Over Japan podcast. This is episode number one. My name is Mark Stephen Schwartz. I'm very pleased to read for you the diaries of American and Allied civilian prisoners of a war interned in and around Kobe, Japan during the Great Pacific War, World War II. No portion of this story can be copied, duplicated, or used in reference in any way, directly or indirectly, without the expressed written permission of Mark Stephen Schwartz. Copyright 2019, all rights reserved. Dedicated to the memories of Max and Ethel Brodowski, the contributing families, and the kindness of so many. There are lessons to be learned from true stories, unembellished, unvarnished, just the truth. Once in a lifetime, if you're listening, you might hear a story that can change your life. It can change your assumptions, your friends and associates, your entire perspective on life, your values, and what you believe. This story and that damn war are still relevant because the conditions of war are so horrible, future generations must not think war should be pursued. Everyone loses. This story offers a comprehensive perspective of life within Japan during the Great Pacific War. Even in the midst of this war, good men acted compassionately. Their story could have easily been lost to history if things had gone the other way. Instead, some good men acted righteously to ensure their enemy would survive. They could have been easily dispatched. Some of the people in this story lost their families to this terrible war. Everyone in Japan suffered, yet this group of American prisoners of war were treated as an honor camp. They were starving, but all of Japan was starving. Their lives were in peril, as was everyone's in Japan. Conditions were severe and bleak. Although most of them survived, they could never recoup the time apart from their loved ones. They had to forget their tragedies and forge ahead with their lives. They never forgot the Japanese guards who helped them. It is our responsibility and honor to preserve the past for the future. Memories fade and things get tossed away as older generations pass. To comprehend this story in a compassionate way may surprise you. Pearl Harbor, island warfare, firebombing cities, and the atomic bomb were horrible events which must not be repeated in the future. Humanity can't survive another war like this. Hate, vernacular, racial prejudice, and division leads to war. It must stop. Fortunately, recognition of their escape from their plight led them to come to terms with Japan. What is the lesson of all wars? The loss and pain are indescribable. To witness war and come out alive 
is a testament to the worst and best of human beings. Prison camp was terrible. Almost all came back alive. None came out whole. When I was young, I asked my godfather, Max Brodowski, what he ate in prison camp. He told me anything that walked, crawled, swam, or flew. He said, you will never be that hungry in your entire life. We Raise the Stars and Stripes Over Japan is a true story. It is based upon the diaries, documents, and memories of American and Allied civilian prisoners interned in and around Kobe, Japan during the Great Pacific War, World War II. It was sparked by a manuscript written by Max Brodowski, which he entitled, We Raise the Stars and Stripes Over Japan. When Max's sister Anne and her husband, Dr. Ping Chaku, granted me permission to transcribe Max's diaries, they made me promise I would tell Max's story compassionately, honestly, and completely. They had preserved the American flag Max brought back home from Japan and a list of his colleagues. The search to find these men and learn their stories began many years ago. Max and three of his colleagues became the first to raise an American flag over mainland Japan after Emperor Hirohito surrendered. The sacrifice it required on both sides is unfathomable. The fact that they were alive and allowed to do so is testament to the compassion of several of their prison guards. Their story depicts their life within Japan and the lives of their families back home. By the end of the war, these civilian internees and their guards had established mutual respect at a place called Fudatabi. Max Brodowski had been assigned to serve as the chief mechanic for Pan American Airways on the tropical island of Guam in November 1940. Max and his crew were kept busy performing maintenance and repairs of Pan American's Boeing B-314 Clippers, which flew into the Guam station. Max and Ethel lived a romantic life as part of the Pan Air station and socialized on the island. Ethel served as the dead mother for Max's assistants, Robert Bob Vaughn and Grant Wells. Grant was a family man with his family back home in Oakland, and Bob was a rascal, but, most, but both of them were excellent mechanics, as demanded by Max. Max was tough on his crew, which included local tomorrow mechanics. Little did they know this idyllic life would suddenly change. As signs of potential conflict arose, the U.S. Naval Governor of Guam, Captain George Johnson McMillan, ordered all American dependents evacuated by October 1941. Ethel would return to the United States. Their love sustained them through the distance and the upcoming war. On December 8, 1941, December 7th in the United States, a couple hours after Imperial Japanese Air Forces 
attacked Pearl Harbor, Guam was bombed. Two days later, Japanese troops landed on the island and started to capture all Americans. The prisoners were taken to Japan and the civilians were held for the duration in Kobe in various locations throughout the city. During the last year of the war, the civilian prisoners were moved to a former boys' reformatory school up in the mountains about six miles from the city's center. The war enveloped them and moved onto their doorstep when a B-29 crashed into their camp. The lives of the B-29 crew members and the Japanese pilot who downed their aircraft became intertwined with the prisoners. Throughout the war, the prisoners had access to the English version of the Daily Mainichi, a local paper which reported articles for Western businessmen, the same as their Japanese edition. From Pearl Harbor, through all major battles, the prisoners tracked the progress of the war through these newspapers, interpreting it as conditions changed. The report of treatment of the Japanese and Japanese Americans being held prisoner in the United States directly impacted these American prisoners in Japan. Many of the former internees agreed to be interviewed along with their families and Mr. Takatoshi Higasa, the former head guard. These men, their families, and those of the crew members of the B-29, which crashed into their camp, have lent their diaries, documents, and memories to create this story, edited lightly to ensure their flow of thought, grammar, and spelling. Unnecessarily provocative terms have been eliminated, but there are sentiments and terms that are unacceptable today, but were commonplace back then. I must respectfully apologize for their use in order to establish context. November 18, 1940, Max Brodovsky. Ethel and I boarded Pan American Airways flying boat California Clipper on our hop to Honolulu. We were on our way to Guam on a two to three year assignment as chief mechanic for Pan Air. The packing was rushed the night before as we received last minute permission for Ethel to land on Guam from the Naval Governor of Guam. There was some apprehension as to trouble with Japan at that time and the Governor of Guam, Captain George J. McMillan, U.S. Navy, was somewhat foresighted. We took off at 12 noon from the surface of San Francisco Bay and headed south after a wonderful view of our San Francisco in the bright autumn sunlight. Two and a half hours later, after a good look at the California coastline, we landed at San Pedro. One hour stay refueling and we were in the air again, headed westward towards Honolulu. The California coastline faded from view in the late afternoon sun and we settled down to a routine flight over the longest overwater hop of commercial airlines. After a nice coarse hot dinner served by our steward, we settled down to some talk. 
Ethel then went to her comfortable Pullman-type berth, and I went to work relieving the flight engineer. The trip was uneventful, just routine as we always described it. At daybreak, we sighted the Hawaiian Islands shrouded in rain clouds. We were flying above the cloud formations, and we beheld the most beautiful sunrise the eyes gaze upon, the sun coming up over the horizon of clouds. At approximately 7 a.m., we landed on the surface of Pearl Harbor, and we felt the caress of the balmy tropics. We were met by my old friend Nils Wicklin and Big Pete, who were Pan Air's maintenance heads at this station. After partaking of pineapple juice, we went to Big Pete's home and were greeted by his wife Edna and their daughter Pat. After a swell breakfast and a visit, we left for the Moana Hotel on Waikiki Beach. We met some of our old friends and had a delightful vacation for eight days, seeing pretty much all of the island of Oahu. On November 27th at 7.30 a.m., we took off from Pearl Harbor and headed into the west again, this time to Midway, 1,100 miles to the northwest. This trip, the constant ocean view, is broken up by the ever-changing scene of the string of islands and reefs known as the Leeward Islands of the Hawaiian group. Midway is next to the last of these, the furthest being Curie Atoll, known as Ocean Island, about 50 miles distant. Midway had its coral reefs and lagoons with sand and eastern islands sitting off to the corner of this unbelievable blue lagoon. I was familiar with this place, having been stationed here during the winter of 39 and spring of 40. The interesting seabird life of this place is as remarkable as any to be found in the far reaches of the seven seas. I finally fulfilled one of my ambitions to show Ethel the Goonies or Laysan Albatross, which is the king of seabirds. After a com comfortable night in the Pan Air Hotel, we were off the lagoon at daybreak on the 1,200 mile hop to Wake Island. Wake was a mess. A terrific typhoon had hit this place two weeks before, just devastating this place. We were greeted by such sights as a boat blown up on the middle of the island, buildings moved off their foundations, and a caterpillar tractor in the lagoon with one track sticking out of the water. Pan Air Ingenuity had the base in working order. We spent a comf comfortable afternoon and night. About 7 a.m., we took off for our destination, Guam. A long hop, 1,500 miles. This trip was uneventful, the scenery consisting of Pacific Ocean. For the early afternoon, we got our first sight of Guam. The beauty of this place was somewhat marred as we viewed it from the air. A typhoon of great velocity had beat the coconut trees around quite a bit, and they looked withered. But the island is really a tropical paradise. Situated between 13 degrees and 14 degrees north latitude, it is almost 30 miles long 
averaging seven miles wide with an area of 210 square miles. The climate is mildly tropical. The temperature averages 85 degrees all year round. It is a tall island with peaks rising up 1,300 feet above sea level. We landed in Opera Harbor, taxied up to our barge, and disembarked. The boat took us to our base at the town of Sume. We finally were settled in our house on a hill just above the airport. The house was situated beautifully, with a long, screened-in lanai, which caught all the soothing trade winds, and the view commanded the harbor, Cabras Island, Sume, and Mount Tenya rising in the background. The mornings were held, heralded by the crowing of hundreds of roosters. Everybody owned a rooster fighting cock or otherwise. From dawn to dusk, we heard the busy Chamorros reconstructing their houses, which were badly damaged in the typhoon. We finally settled down to a life in the tropics, an island paradise, with the simple, likable Chamorros, coconuts, and many abundant tropical fruits. The natives cultivated corn, avocado, string beans, Chinese cabbage, tomatoes, bananas, pineapple, and eggplant. Bread, fruit, and coconut trees took care of themselves. Here the natives, if untouched by outside influences, could go on with their more or less indolent existence. These were carefree, happy people. Modern civilization, in the form of a naval government which maintained a naval hospital and gave medical care, taught the natives sanitation, did wonders in increasing the average lifespan and health of the population. They also had a public school system with compulsory education. The natives had become honest-to-goodness Americans in the farthest outpost of American territory. Here were a group of real Americans on one lone island of the Mariana Group, which extends 400 miles north and south, Guam being the most southerly. The rest were mandated to our questionable little brethren, the Japanese, who also controlled the surrounding groups, the Marshalls, the Bonins, and Carolines. This concludes episode one of the We Raise the Stars and Stripes Over Japan podcast. Thanks so much for listening.